0: Everyone, welcome to this episode of the Heart of It podcast where we chat about what matters most in the world of HR the people. My name is Sam Smeltzer, I'm an HR intuitive and healer, and today we are having a very special episode. That's why it sounds completely different than what you're used to because it is being facilitated live, and I'm so excited that for this first time live podcast episode two things. Number one, I get to hang out with one of the coolest people that's been on the podcast before, uh, Jen Thornton. And number two, we're able to provide you continuing education credit via SHRM for the first time because the Heart Center is now a recertification provider. So I'm really excited for that. So I'm going to stop talking for a moment because I want Jen to be able to say hello because I'm so excited to have her back with us here on the
1: podcast. Jen, you want to say hello to the listeners? Hello, everyone, and I'm thrilled to be here. Sam and I could talk um, HR business all day, every day, and get lost down that rabbit hole. Yeah. So we have a really fun
0: show uh, planned for you today. We're going to talk about this concept of cultural onboarding. Uh, But because this is a little bit off from what we typically do on the show, I want to take a moment just to formally introduce Jen and make sure that we all know why she is the subject matter uh, content expert for our conversation today, and why I invited her for this dialogue. So, a little bit about Jen. Jen has developed her expertise in talent strategy and leadership professional development over her exciting 20 plus year career as an HR professional. She's led international teams across greater China, Mexico, the UK, and the US to expand into new markets, managing franchise retailers, and developing key strategic partnerships. All while exceeding business objectives and financial results. The rapid growth of her consulting firm 304 Co- Coaching has been largely due to Jennifer's unconventional approach to building innovative workforce development solutions for companies who are facing breakthrough growth and accelerated hiring patterns. So, very impressive, Biogen. <laughs> um so our conversation today uh, sparked from the very first episode that you did with us and there was a couple things that you were saying um, and at the time we were recording I was actually teaching my recruitment class uh, and we were doing this active project and I just there was so much correlation that I thought, gosh this would be cool to have you as a guest speaker And then I thought, well why keep that isolated to just, Class, when so many others can benefit from that information as well and then birth the idea that we're here today with you to have this live dialogue. Um, And so when we came together and kind of talked about the things that were my aha moments from that, it resulted in us kind of naming this episode Cultural Onboarding, Um, And I know this is probably a new concept, not just for students or new HR practitioners, but probably for tenured practitioners as well, when we're talking about recruitment and retention. So Jen, I guess, let's start with what is cultural onboarding. So if you were to define it, how would you explain that to everybody listening today?
1: So, how I would define culture onboarding is really the way in which we work together in this environment. And when we're hiring and recruiting, you know, yes, we're looking for what we love to call culture fit. Um, and that may be someone who matches those um, cultural statements that we have in our handbook and we have them on a poster on the wall. And it says things like authenticity or innovation or collaboration, any of those types of things. But then what does that actually mean? And how does that play out in the workforce? And so when you're onboarding someone new, not only do you have to think about how to teach them how to do their job, you have to teach them how to interact in the environment in a way that's productive in a way that allows them to feel comfortable, to um, ask questions, to collaborate, to do all the things you want them to do. And that can be as small as, you know, um, we we have a consistent kind of unwritten rule that we end meetings on time. Or it could be, you know, we help our our media department before we help others to ensure that the workload is never kind of left at the bottom of the train. There's a lot of things that it could be, but it's really about how does the team come together and actually do the work we've we've asked them to do.
0: Mm, Yeah, which is, you know, always fascinating to me that we talk about things like this because we hire people to do a job, yet it's like our... Our recruitment process and to the onboarding process hasn't really caught up to materializing that aspect of our true intention of, of the entire task of why we're hiring in the first place. So um, I think you know this speaks to making that process more effective. Uh, and I guess that leads me to the next logical question is, our current onboarding process, the go-to that most of us that are tenured in NHR, even students are being trained to be a textbook of how to onboard and those checklists, you know, why is that process still lacking or uh, has so much more potential? You know, can you kind of briefly evaluate maybe where the opportunities are there and why why we're having this conversation today and so significant?
1: You know, I think when we look at, um, you know, history and how we look at um, HR or how we look at um, interacting with employees, a lot of those best practices were created in the 70s, 80s, um, maybe early 90s and they may have worked then but you know the world's a little different today than it was you know back then and so what happens is we become in this you know because we're humans that's just how it's done you know everyone gets a 30 60 90 day plan you know you meet your boss on the first day you you know whatever you know all those basic things but i think what we haven't done well at is really recognizing why people work and ensure that we're onboarding in, in a way that they understand that and why people work or is yes, financial security, but past that why people work is a sense of purpose and contributing to a bigger goal. So through onboarding, you have to tell them what that looks like and that is part of the culture. Here's how you contribute and make this work. No matter what position you're in, if we hired you, you're, you're important. Um, they work because of personal growth and, you know, they want to grow um, and mature and have more experiences. And so what does that look like from a cultural standpoint in an organization? And then they also work for connections and really feeling connected to the people around them. And how do we create those connections? And so I think that, you know, um, we just haven't always caught up with understanding why people work today and answering those needs. It's just, you know, it's how it's always been. So it's how it should always be. But unfortunately, those old ways of working are pretty broken.
0: So, you know, as you gave those examples, I'm going to go to the tried and true kind of probably answers, you know, when we're thinking about our current onboarding process, and you think about, you know, connecting them to the greater purpose. Well, if I have an orientation that hits mission, vision, and shares our organizational values, aren't I doing that already in my onboarding process and then to take it one step further you talk about growth well if i show them the growth paths per se like where you could technically get promoted in the organization is that taking care of that is that you know are those sufficient or are you seeing that those are
1: still lacking as well i think they're part of it um you know i think what what we, you know when you think of culture onboarding you're really thinking about what's probably missing but I don't think it means we take anything away. I think you're absolutely right. You know, we have to say, here's our mission and all of that. But then what does that actually mean? How does that actually come to life? Um, you also have to remember when you've hired someone, they have um, experiences and perceived ways of work that they're bringing with them from previous organizations, more than likely. Mm-hmm. And so, if in my previous organization, It was inappropriate to ask my supervisor to be on some important calls so that I understood and learned um, kind of what was going on and could make better decisions. But in this culture, it's very appropriate to say, hey, I know this project's coming up to help me understand how to make decisions. I need to be on some of these important calls, could I? So you have to kind of know and teach people how to culturally work and that again creates growth just by being on a call and creating that experience that person would be growing because they're going to be hearing conversations they wouldn't normally have access to um and so teaching people things like you know here you know when we work together what we want you to do is we want you to seek out experiences so that's maybe part of your culture on paper seek out experiences but this is what that means and that's the piece i think that we don't always share And then once we say this is what it means, then as an organization, we have to ensure that we're setting up environments where that is true and that is a reality. And that's sometimes the harder piece of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, thank you for helping establish the baseline and foundation of what we're talking about today. Uh, I think where the magic really comes from this topic is uh, basically what initially kind of attracted me to having you as an initial guest on the podcast, which is talking about the fact that you've been connecting neuroscience to HR work, particularly retention, particularly recruitment and how that plays in this. And I liked, I loved your phrase of how we culturally work, um, and, and what's happening in the brain, because I think human biology has a piece, um, in the way that we lead in our organizations and grow people. Like if, if you don't think it's related, then that's a whole nother episode in itself. Go check out the first one that Jen and I did. But, um, but it is, I mean, the way that we function as humans uh, hit plays a huge piece in this. And we have to figure that out, which is why a lot of psychology majors actually end up in human resources because, and also HR people end up taking psychology classes as electives because we're trying to learn more and more about people. So I say all of this to basically go to my next question of connect neuroscience to what we're talking about here and taking this cultural onboarding concept to how does it transform into a true kind of retention strategy for us, which is where it really pays off.
1: Oh my gosh, there's so many different directions I could go with that um, question, but I think um, you know, the place to start is around predictions. And so, how we um, function, how our brain functions, is around predictions. So, before I got on this call today, you know, I knew that you and I could talk all day about this type of stuff. I was predicting this would be fun, this would be exciting, and I, you know, we would hopefully contribute and make a difference. And so, I came on air with you with that prediction, and therefore, I perform that way, or therefore, I, you know, feel excited and confident to be here. Now, same thing happens in any work situation. And so if I have these experiences where, you know, if you mess something up or you fail, you're in big trouble, but yet at this new organization, it's called experimenting. And so therefore it's okay to not get it right because you're learning what doesn't work and you're learning how to be more efficient. Then my brain may predict, I can't try anything new because if I fail, I'll be in trouble because those are your predictions. Now... When you do culture onboarding you help create those predictions you say here's how we look at failure here's how we look at experimenting here's how we look at having difficult conversations with your peers this is how we think about cross-functional conversations and so allowing instead of allowing someone to make predictions based on their past or the unknown You give them those predictions through language and through cultural onboarding to say, this is how we work. This is our way of work. And you could have three job descriptions. I don't know, we'll make one up. You could have three people that are doing IT security. And you could have the exact same job description. And you could put that same job description in three different companies, but their culture and their way of work would make those jobs feel like three different entire jobs. And that's you know a good way to think about that cultural onboarding. The work may be the same on, on paper, but how we do that work is what's so important.
0: You know, I love when you talked about starting with predictions, because that just made me do like a couple more steps back in where does cultural cultural onboarding begin, um, the students that are attending today, their first project was doing something called an employment brand audit, where they basically looked at the marketing from an employment brand, but also from a consumer brand if they are online, because everything is sending messages about, do I want to work there or not work there? And so now I'm thinking, my gosh, by the second they come onto our website, read the initial job description or the posting or the way the application process is handled, that is all feeding into the predictions
1: for the way that we're going to function in that environment. Right? Absolutely. And I love that your students are working on employer branding. I, it is so incredibly important. It's always been important. It can't be any more important than it is right now. There's no secret. There is a shortage of workers who are interested in a traditional job. And one of the reasons they do work is connections. And so, employer branding is that connection to a company prior to applying. And, you know, too often we look at a job description as, oh, I need this IT security person. I better go find one at the IT security person, you know, store and I'll just go pick one up. But this is a long term, you know, recruitment is truly a long term strategy. It is not a short term strategy. And every piece of information you put out about your organization, Um, starts to tell people how do you do the work and, you know, sharing stories of employees, even sharing um, a story around, you know, if someone came in and said, you know, it took me four times to figure out how to land this one product, but we finally did it. But instead, employers say, we've got this great product. Mm -hmm. But what they don't share is the story of what it took to get there. Because that's really the culture, right? Did that person get to try it for six months and then finally figured it out and we're celebrating the actual six months of failures and figuring it out? Or are we just celebrating the end result? And that starts to give people this idea of what would it be like to work there? And when you've got three or four job offers on your table, you're making predictions on which place will I fit best and which place will I feel the most connected?
0: Yeah. Wow, that just totally like, you know, one of the things that popped in my head is thinking about like the iPhone. Like, how cool would it think? would it be if it was, and it probably is posted somewhere, but the process of who mm-hmm. thought of the phone? who makes the call when it gets bigger or smaller or and what was that process like? And then I also, at the same time, had the thought, does no one talk about it because it was such a horrible working process, and the culture was so terrible so you don't want to air your dirty laundry but like there's a prime opportunity where you have a great marketing tool, but maybe
1: can't because your culture is not marketable. (laughs) Yeah, there might be some of that um, for sure. And I think that you know there is in today's world, there's this sense of transparency and authenticity. You know, if an organization starts putting out these, you know, um, kind of mirage stories of how amazing it is. And there are people going, that's not where I work. I'm not sure where they got those ideas. That hits Glassdoor, that hits on LinkedIn. When you post a picture, someone's going to make a comment saying that is not true. And so organizations are are being held accountable for their culture through these items. So they can either hide the culture and not do any brand awareness because they're, they're embarrassed by it, which should be your first indication that something needs to be fixed if you're embarrassed by it. Or they can put it out there and someone can celebrate it and say, yes, this is exactly what happened. It was amazing. Or you're not being authentic or authentic authenticity. Mm -hmm. Sorry, authenticity. Um, So there's a sense of truth and employer branding that has to be there. Um, You can't fake it because there's too many people out there willing to share their story. (laughs) That's so true. And I
0: think that's a great transition to... The one final area I want to cover in our formal programming, which is this concept of fear, you know, as I've continued doing my studies in my focus area, which um, is completely, not completely different, but focusing on employee engagement, I've realized that a lot of the hurdles for an organization is fear-based. There's fear of what will happen if I take this risk or I do this. So, how does fear play an effect when we're talking about onboarding, culture development, this whole kind of concept, even recruitment right now?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, we all have fear. We are human, therefore, we have fear. So, if someone wants to walk around and say they're fearless, I'm sorry, it's not true. Um, so, number one, we have to recognize we have fear, and that is just the reality. Now, the amount of fear is what you can and can't control, or can control, at times can't control. And so what we wanna know or what we wanna be aware of is as we lead organizations, as we lead individuals, our language either increases fear or decreases fear. And the importance of decreasing fear is there because the lower the fear, the more access you have to the parts of your brain you need to collaborate, emotional control is in like the prefrontal cortex, Um, problem solving, learning. And so, you know, people will like yell at someone because they don't know how to do something, but that raises their fear. Therefore, they have less access to the part of their brain that learns. Mm -hmm. And so it's incredibly important um, as as leaders to create environments where we are reducing fear. And one of the easiest ways to do that is through language so that we can have environments where people are learning and. And again, that creates a culture, you know, that culture of, um, you know, reducing fear. So you hire a new manager, you know, innovation may be the, the thing on the wall, but how we do that is through reduce, reducing fear. And how we reduce fear is by looking at experimenting versus failure, um, because they are the same thing. It's just two different words, and you have two different emotional connections to those words.
0: Mm. So what you're saying is if I have a new employee who starts and they are terrified of failing, mm-hmm. they probably
1: have a very low capacity to actually learn how to do their new job. Absolutely. Yes. They go hand in hand and you you know you can't have north without south, left without right or dark without light. You cannot have innovation with a little bit of fear. You ha- cuz we are fear-based animals. And so the reduction of fear gives you more space. For more innovation and learning and all that good stuff.
0: So, um, I think there's one other thing that we have to talk about just because of the current climate uh, that is happening um, with the pandemic. Uh, you know, recruitment has really gotten shine with a spotlight, retention has become even more important than ever. We have people who are just refusing to work, refusing to work in certain conditions. Um, it's almost like this uprising and rebellion that's occurring. And uh, now we're trying to actively put into place all these changes that should have probably started to happen a decade ago, if not sooner. Um, and so there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of functioning in a crisis mode. Uh, there's a lot of HR practitioners who are tired. Um who are lost because they don't even know what the answer is to fill these vacancies that their staff is slowly just burning out because they can't fill them the way that we always have filled them. And so is there anything that you want to share for those individuals? I mean, that's a big open bucket, but, um, you know, what would you say to them? Uh, Because I do know, I just know that that that's a situation that keeps coming up. It's come up routinely on the podcast um, cause we are in a, and small business owners too. I mean, they're, it's just, it's all over the place.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of pieces to it. I think, you know, from a um, root cause kind of um, where do you start? One of the first places you start is making sure that the leaders understand that there are options. And that, again, that, that mentality we had of the eighties and nineties, if you were not in your chair at your desk, then you were not working you know, or the person who worked the most hours was clearly the best person. Well, if someone can do that job in 30, someone can do it in 45, everyone gets paid this price for it, hey, do it when you can, you know, get it done. Um, so that type of mentality, you know, as an HR professional, we have to start to help leaders understand what are the possibilities? Are there work from home? Are there job shares? Are there certain things that don't necessarily have to be done in a certain time frame every single day? You know, there could be um, options of saying, you know, every Monday and Tuesday we work these hours. Thir- Wednesday through Thursday here are your window you know you give us your windows and we'll work with and you can work within them. You know, there's all these options and we just have to open our mind up to them. And when you have a more flexible um, mindset around work getting completed, then you open yourself up to additional candidates. So that's one piece. But I know it's easy for us to say that in this group because we are HR practitioners. We know that. But we have to sell that concept to um, our supervisors, the leaders of the organizations. And that's that's your first piece of it. I think the second piece of it is helping organizations really understand what work actually has to be done you know, if there are four people doing a group of or set amount of work, one person leaves and that person in theory, their job gets dumped on those other three people. So they're doing a job in a third. Well, maybe that's not what needs to happen. Maybe there are things that I love to call vanity work that we're doing that we actually don't need to do Mm -hmm. and really stopping and saying, is this work the right work? Does this work actually impact our business or have we just always done it that way so we do it? or there's just one executive who likes it that way but it's really inefficient do we have a conversation with that person about inefficiencies and so there are other ways than just accepting the work that we can help people feel more productive and feel better about the job that they do
0: Mm. yeah So I'm going to use this as an opportunity to transition to start doing Q&A, and I have some questions that were submitted by the students, so I'm going to start working through some of those. Um, And anyone else who is in the audience, if you have questions, please feel free to drop them in the chat, and I will uh, address those as well. Um, So the first question that I have here, which I think is a really interesting one, and it goes to this idea that you just talked about, kind of a flexibility and having an open mind about the way we are working and how that should change for the future. Um, And so if we take that and apply that directly to the recruitment process, as I have talked to a lot of recent college grads who are looking for employment, um, They share about this want and need for this personalized experience, Mm -hmm. this personal connection through the interview process, uh, which is so polar to what we've kind of embraced as HR, where it's compliance and we want to make sure that uh, we don't increase our liability. um, We don't want to, you know, cross any boundaries, Uh, Now, I do know, and I know a couple people who signed up to attend us live today, I know they're very experienced interviewers. And and when we've done it for a long time, we can do that personal connection because we know where the boundaries are. But when we're thinking about hiring managers that we're training to interview, integrating this personalized connection, you know, what advice do you have for revisiting how we interview without putting us at
1: risk, but also... Being flexible. Yeah. So, really good question. I think. Um, you know, how we've always looked at interviews is is a one way street. It's like dating, but only one person gets to know that person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's just this and at the end, the last two minutes, we go any questions, and we have this sense of like, please don't ask me any, I'm really tired, I'd like to go home, right? You know, that one, you know, and you're like, sure, I guess I don't have any questions. (laughs) And so really teaching hiring managers about a two way conversation, you should allow that person to interview the company as much as you're interviewing them because again that starts to build that cultural fit that starts to build the predictions of how things will work and you're teaching that candidate with that hiring manager to have really you know great two-way conversations and i think that's an important piece of it i think the other piece and and you kind of have to train the candidate too because candidates come in prepared to just answer questions and so you know some of those questions could be you know when you when you look at um, building a relationship with your supervisor, um, you know, what would it take to, for you to call it really successful for you to say this is a successful relationship? Tell me what you would like and not like. You know, and so, you know, that then creates a conversation. Well, I don't like this or I do like that. Well, I, I I can see this piece of it, but here's how I work. Is that something that you would be negotiable on? Because here's, you know, we can't be flexible five days a week, but we can be flexible three days a week. Mm-hmm. And so it's this, you know, conversation and getting to know each other because you're they're going to make a better decision on the fit and you will make a better decision on skill and fit. Um, And again, you're building up conversations. The other thing with hiring managers is they need that person. They're desperate to get that person hired, right? All of those things, that feeling we have in our stomach as a recruiter, like, please let this interview go well. And that's how I started my HR career as a recruiter. And I know that feeling when you know they're in the interview and you're like waiting for that recap phone call. See how it went. Um, so you know, people wanna know what the purpose is. They wanna have so we've talked about connections and that two-way street, but how do you create, you know, purpose? And so that hiring manager and that recruiter have to have the same story about why this position is important. And so, you know, that hiring manager saying, if you take this role, here's how you'll impact our business. Here's why this role is important. You know, is this purpose that would fulfill you? Mm -hmm. And that's an important piece, too, because that's why they're showing up and it's why they're leaving because they don't have it and so i think those are those new skill sets that we probably don't have language for yet we probably don't have you know i'm sure corn fairy hasn't written a competency um, language for any of this new stuff yet but again anything that was working in 2019 just you know start over um today um and start thinking about things differently and start getting really creative um but never forget that you know, why people are working in today's world, because that's what you have to answer to them for.
0: Well, and I love how, you know, your two suggestions materialize very tangible kind of takeaways. I mean, the whole concept of the two-way conversation by provoking that you could do a structured interview guide with those prompts like what you said. And it's not too far from what we have been comfortable with. You still get to maintain control of the context of the questions yet you are generating that personalized and giving them more freedom, um, you know, which is, is always one of the big hurdles. The other piece is, you know, this training becomes even more important for hiring managers on why they are working and how they are connected to something bigger, you know, for them to inspire and purpose in an interview, they've got to have that figured out for themselves as well. And so mm-hmm. I think, you know, now we're, you're even adding more um, uh, value to some things that have been labeled as, you know, waste of time when you look at how this is all replicating and generating ultimately retention in the best quality cultural fit hires for, uh, for an organization in the long
1: term make such a difference. And, you know, when everyone knows why their work matters, you know, they're going to show up and do it in a whole different way because they're going to want, you know, people don't wake up. I know we always laugh about this in HR. People don't wake up and say, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, just go and blow up my office. I'm going to make everyone mad today. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to do my work or my best to do my worst work. You know, very few have ever that happens. It's about us, You know, creating an environment where people have purpose so they know why it's important for them to do the work that they have the capabilities of doing. Hmm.
0: So um, continuing on this concept of interviewing, I thought this was really fascinating. So the question came up on if we should ask people about their previous work place cultures like what their past experiences have been which is always interesting to me because I know sometimes like to me that sounds like almost like a trap question to see if they will like bash their previous Mm -hmm. organization however I would want them to be honest I mean there's obviously something that was not perfect about it which is why I mean I know that there's the can response as the interviewee well I'm looking for greater growth opportunities but Mm-hmm. You know, you're leaving for a reason. You couldn't stay loyal to the organization for a reason. There was something off, and so I want to know that. So I think this this is a complicated question because it, it's something that we also have to let go of in our filters based off their response. Um, so do you think it's something we should do or not do? And if we do, like, what are the parameters so that this is productive?
1: Um, I think that's a great and I think you have to be careful how you ask the question because you do want a truthful answer. So how I would ask that question is, you know, looking at all of your previous jobs, tell me the traits of a culture in which you performed your best. And so then it's not necessarily about one or this, it's a collective traits because they may say, well, I like this from this job, I like that from that job, and this first job, I like this one thing, but if I could get all five of those right here, that'd be really amazing. And so what are those, you know, asking what are those traits of the culture that make you do your best work, that create an environment where you wake up every day and you're pumped to go to work and you're pumped to deliver, what, what are those traits? Um and then let them talk to you about those traits.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great. And I love how you gave the example cuz I think the goal would be that they kind of create this uh perfect little I don't know if this is a great reference to share on the podcast, but cocktail of their perfect yeah. the perfect co- cultural cocktail. Is that? I don't know. <laughs> I like it. It works. <laughs> um All right. And then the other last piece, and this links back to when we were talking about employment branding and, you know, this fake work and that kind of sabotaging us in the long haul. So, you know, how honest and transparent should we be in the interviews as, you know, I know that I've worked in places where I definitely was selling a dream that was not the reality. I mean, I could see the potential around me. However, that was not what they were going to be walking right into on day one. Um, and now I think we're asked to be more authentic than ever. Um, but, you know, where's that line that you're airing too much dirty laundry, but,
1: you know, but also still being truthful? Yeah. You know, no matter how great a company culture is, there are things that aren't perfect because, you know, um, I always think of culture and a work and a job is, you know, kind of like marriage. You, you know, my aunt when I was young once said, here's how marriage works. You find someone whose weird stuff doesn't get on your nerves because everyone's got it. <laughs> And i kind of think of jobs that way you find a place where there's stuff that's not great doesn't bother you because there's so much good stuff and you can live with that um and that's obviously kind of simplifying things but i think that you you're you're as honest as you can be um, in an appropriate manner you know if you have an organization that's in fast growth cycle so there's rapid change then you can say, here's what's awesome about being here. We are growing like crazy. We have added, you know, 40 positions in the last 12 months in this company. And there is such a sense of excitement about where we're going. The flip side of that is we're still figuring out some of the ways we work together. and We're still figuring out efficiencies. And that's going to take us some time to figure out. So if if you want to come along for the ride of the growth, here's what it feels like if you want to be somewhere really established, I don't know if you would enjoy being here. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, a truthful answer of what's great, but what's the other side of that? Because, you know, there's always a a trade-off. Yeah. So we're going to um,
0: transition and talk a little bit about those hiring managers and the training for prepping them, which we already kind of hinted at. Um, And I thought this was very appropriate and... Uh, I think it links back to your bio and, and Jen knows. So Jen was my coach at one point, And one of the reasons why she was my coach is because she's much better with finances than me. And so me getting my, my, or, my business house in order was very important for me. So, um, and I was terrible at this even when I was in the corporate environment, you know, budgets, um, you know, HR's routinely told to do a lot with less. Um, mm-hmm. But That HR prep, those HR trainings, even the one of helping them figure out why their work matters and how that's going to send those ripples Mm -hmm. is imperative to retention. So the things that we're experiencing right now, a lot of them can be resolved fairly quickly if we can get hiring managers on the same page and prep the way that they need to be. I mean, they can make some of these shifts that could be monumental and some of the quickest changes we can see in this entire process um, by kind of multiplying yourself using them. Um, And so the question comes up about, you know, budget wise, what do I even think? And I know this is going to vary on every organization, but do you have any kind of advice as far as logically what I should think if I'm going to try to pitch to have some money to invest in this? What how do I figure that out? If if there's an equation, if there's, I don't know, an algebra equation or something like that, that I I should use.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was actually good at algebra. Oh, (laughs) letters should never be in math. That was very confusing (laughs) to me. Um, So I think the first thing you have to do is recognize the cost of turnover, because that is something that most leaders don't understand. Um, I just got back from a conference um, and did a whole workshop on the cost of turnover. Um, That dollar that they want HR to save will be spent somewhere. You just have to decide what line item you would like it on. Mm. Would you like it on your sales light item? Your, your sales are down 10%. Would you like it on, um, you know, um, product setting in the warehouse because you can't get the people to unload the truck? Where do you want that dollar to be spent? Because it will be spent somewhere. And so um, really understanding the cost of turnover in your organization, and that is different from everyone. If you look at, you know, there's a lot of different numbers out there. You know, I know Sherm uses the standard of 1.5 a person's salary. And I would say that's true for a lot of positions, but then you look at positions where someone has a ton of institutional knowledge and is able to do probably three or four jobs all wrapped into one because they're so efficient. You lose them, it may be two to three times their salary. Mm -hmm. Then you think about some high demand, really specific jobs. We go back to our IT security job. You know, IT security professionals are incredibly hard to find in the market. So, you know, you lose one, you get hacked, that could have cost you 100 times that person's salary. Um, And so really stopping and thinking about your makeup of your organization. Every time you lose someone, who is that person? What were they doing? What were their impact? What's the impact of the team now that they're gone? And start to really put some numbers to that and then go ask for a percentage of that. Now, you know, you could say I've lost four people and it can add up to a million dollars in a blank. You probably can't go and ask for a million dollars in cash to do a recruiting project today, unless you're a really, really big company. But you can go and say, here's what it's costing us. I'd like $50,000 out of this one million to see if I can move that number and to really start to think about how to drive our organizational results. Then you have to track the progress and you have to keep going back and saying, here's what I did, here's the impact here's where we're moving the needle, here's how things are more efficient. You know, even things like, you know, our supply chain um, picked up um, one day in shipping time between unload and sort and reload. That's millions of dollars back to an organization. And as an HR practitioner, if you can say how your retention created a, you know, a one day efficiency Heck you paid for it and then some, and that's how you get budgets as an HR professional. You talk about how you strategically, positively impact the business.
0: Yeah, wow. Yes, yeah, see, that's why she was my coach. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's always about impact. Who cares how you do it, make an impact. Um,
0: well, and I, I think, you know, the perfect place to start is turnover because people are experiencing a large amount right now for a variety of different reasons. We have people who don't want to work in this environment. And so they're doing early retirement. You have people who are burnt out. Uh, you have people who just realize uh, it's not worth it anymore. So we've had all of those kind of come to a head at the same time, which is a perfect storm and a lot of fun for all of us to navigate.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Immigration's at an all-time low and that compounds over yeah. years, especially in sectors who really depend on immigration. Um, there's there's just a lot of ways to make a dollar in today's world. And so organizations have to understand that you know just providing a paycheck doesn't provide a reason for people to show up because they can go get a paycheck in a lot of different places in today's world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's close out this topic on HR training by talking about What is this, you know, so if I'm prepping these hiring managers and say, I do get this budget, what should it look like? Like, as long as I get a PowerPoint slide and I run them through it, is that sufficient? Um, You know, what does that look like? And then on top of that, what do I do if they don't buy in? Like, (laughs) so say I do spend that money and they're like not drinking the Kool-Aid, you
1: know, what do I do? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's always good to have, you know, um, different tiers of a plan. And so you go in with here's here's what's possible and here's what it's going to cost. Always have things in there that don't cost because if i'm an executive and i'm like all right you're asking for $50,000 but you also created this at no cost you didn't ask for 100,000 so you have to always balance you know where you're going to find that those dollars Um, And it's small stuff um, that really are no cost, like experiences, you know, or a mentor program, there's a lot of different things you could do that are really of no cost. Mm -hmm. Um, And so balance those out and show that in, you know, a spreadsheet or something, you know, this is the 10 initiatives, here's what each of them will cost have a couple of things that show that there is, you know, something at no cost. I think the other thing is to know that you have to update people and you have to say, you know, here's what I've spent so far, here's where we're landing, you have to understand how to manage a budget as an HR practitioner, because um, just like, um, you know, someone in finance or, or someone in marketing, there's very few positions out there where there's no expectations of managing a budget. And I think sometimes we forget as HR practitioners, that we are budget managers also, and so really put that budget manager hat on and think about um, how to do it. Talk about negotiations. You can say, you know, here's a vendor I'd like to work with. Here's where they came in at, um, you know, sixty thousand dollars, but I negotiated it down and did this, this, and I, I'm getting it for thirty thousand. So I know thirty thousand sounds like a ton. It's half price of what they showed up with. I negotiated them down. Mm-hmm. Share that. Let them know that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think those are great words of wisdom, because if you haven't used outside vendors, uh, you're going to have a rude awakening when you start getting people to proposal. And that's just that's common. I mean, even when I was in the corporate environment, my first time I started getting pricing, you're like, what? It costs what? Um, And when you look at and you break down the hours, it makes a lot of sense. It's just kind of this initial kind of sticker shock. So uh, I do appreciate you throwing out thirty thousand dollars because I don't think that's
1: out of the realm of what you can expect if you're trying to do interventions like this. Yeah, Um, and a lot of times we use vendors because they have specialty knowledge and that specialty knowledge costs. But oftentimes too, we use vendors because they are collectively pulling skills And so, you know, here at 304, we are a leadership education company. So we do leadership programs for organizations and we white label, we custom design. And when we custom design a training and education program, there are nine people who touch it. Mm -hmm. I, the company couldn't go and hire nine salaries to do it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And so that's also what you have to think about when you're working at vendors, you're paying for specialized information and collective resources. Yeah. Thank you.
0: I mean, that's always great stuff to to help obtain buy-in in the entire process.
1: Mhm.
0: So, um, you know, one of the things when I think about cultural onboarding is uh, and, and I don't know why, this is one of those aha moments that I had and I think it's because I underestimated it for so long is how detrimental the application process can be to the entire recruiting process if it is painful. Um, And in fact, I always say that, and I'm like, when we're thinking about recruitment strategies and retention strategies, sometimes the change can be as task-oriented as how we are initially inquiring about people wanting to entertain employment. Mm -hmm. Um, And so one piece of that is assessments, you know? so Because we want to find out as much as we can about these candidates before we talk to them, which I think is also another way that we need to revisit that. But are there... Are there some assessments that you think are really important during pre-employment that help people with this whole concept uh, that we've been talking about this entire time?
1: Yeah, I love that you asked that question because more and more companies are using assessments right now. Um, We represent an an employee employment um, assessment here at 304 Coaching and we use OAD and we are a a vendor for OAD. Um, But what I would say about assessments, number one, and please hear this, make sure they're EEOC compliant. Please do not use an assessment that is not compliant. There is a Supreme Court case that lays out how an assessment has to be compliant to be used as part of the decision process. Um, so I talk to clients all the time and they will tell me what they're using in pre-employment and I'm like, oh, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. That is not EOC compliant. So there's my little soapbox for that. Um, so getting off that soapbox to why you want a, an assessment that helps you understand traits So that could be communication style, detail, um, someone's ability to um, be versatile. Um, you know, their level of um, interest in change. So if you're in a high change organization, you wanna hire people who um, seek out change. Um, If you're hiring someone for a position that's um, in a high change organization, but yet it's maybe um, a tax accountant, well, you can't get really creative, you gotta follow the rules. So maybe you find someone who, you, you don't want someone creative there, you want someone pragmatic. Um, and decision style because that's again goes back to the culture how you make decisions impacts the culture and, and how that works so um you know make sure whatever assessment you choose gives you the information you need to make a good um, um conversa- or to have a good conversation around work behaviors mm-hmm. um no assessment should be the end-all be-all it is part of the process so it's about the interview or the conversation as i'd like to say it's about the conversation it's about the connection it's about the assessment and the way that person um, works. Um, it's about their experience, their knowledge, their education. There are a lot of pieces of the puzzle. Um, too often people want an assessment that's like a silver bullet. And um, if I can find it, I will. And then I'm going to be the richest person in the world. And Sam, you and I'll just go off and live on the beach somewhere and oh. talk business. <laughs> I like how I'm included in that. So. <laughs> you know, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um-
0: So I'm going to push you back on your soapbox because I think that, you know, the way that people have found a way around it. So they've heard, you know, if it's not EEOC compliant, don't do it. It's a liability. So then they do it immediately post hire um, Mm -hmm. with the tagline. I'm getting to know them and how they fit with the team. Now, I'm just curious your thoughts on it being that particular step in the process, considering what we just talked about in regards to fear and uh, how that impacts the individual, the new hire, and their ability to truly
1: onboard into the culture? Yeah. So if your organization is using um, an assessment, um, how you view that assessment, how you talk about that assessment is key, especially if it's not EEOC compliant. So if um you do one after someone's on board it was not part of the decision style but it's part of way of work or you know team building or any of those types of things then the organization has to view them as a piece of the puzzle just like in the onboarding it's not an end-all be-all it's not um oh i hired this person and you know they did this assessment and i just found out and i'll use a color because everyone uses colors and assessments i just found out they're a purple purples don't work around here and then all of a sudden they start treating that person poorly um, because of that that's not okay Um, how we have to look at assessments as it is information to how to work with someone better um, how to help them work better within our culture and that we celebrate those differences we move from differentiation into linkage Um, linkage is what i like to call really strong teams who lean into differences And um, we have to look at those differences that way um, as an organization versus, you know, judging. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: The other piece I wanted to hit from your previous comment, you talked about the assessments, you know, behavioral based, trait based, um, and you made examples of referencing the traits, you know, for example, if this organization is experiencing this, this might be a trait that you're looking for. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, this is a big part of, human resource development, which is not everyone's specialty niche, you know, assessing from jobs, understanding the traits you're seeking. So now we're looking at specific traits that equate to success in our culture, um, which might be totally foreign and not something that you're actively doing right now. And so now like that, you know, that could overwhelm me in itself. Like, oh my gosh, now Jen just said this. And now I'm trying to figure out what in the world are the traits that basically might serve as the foundation for my entire cultural onboarding so mm-hmm. how do i start picking those out and identifying
1: them any tools or resources or you know how, how do i do that so anytime you are in conversations about possibly bringing in an assessment um survey whatever you want to call them never call them a test um and um you're trying to make that decision what i would recommend to say i want to do a test case of performers. And you know, it can be maybe everyone in one department or maybe, you know, if you're trying depending on what you're looking for, it could be across the board and do a good 2550 person if you can um and and you know what? Their vendors are going to want to sell you something. Ask ask them to do it for you for free. Um and cuz you can negotiate with vendors, I promise. Um and so um you do that assessment on a group of people top performers middle performers bottom performers Mm -hmm. then you start to see can you find any correlation all of my top performers have score or come out with these types of traits all of my bottom performers do not have those traits and have these, and none of my top performers have those. My middle kind of have this and that. That starts to allow you to pull apart the data and um, really start to say, oh, this assessment is identifying these types of traits for this job because I can see the difference in the, in the profiles between top and bottom performers. Um, it's really interesting work to do. Um, I do it with a lot of organizations when they're looking um, and you know, they're considering the um, OAD that I sell. Um, But I I love doing that exercise because then you can start to really show people where the value is. Um, And then again, when you go to ask for money, (laughs) then you can say, I did a survey, here's what we found, here's the information. And I did that with um, an organization about a year ago, we did a hundred salespeople they all sold in the same markets. And we were able to see that exactly their top performers' profiles were polar opposite to their bottom performers. And we found those consistencies and we found that information. And so they were able to go back to the board and ask for funding because, you know, we could start to prove what what the results were um, through um, analytics. And, you know, the world of HR, of it just being the policy police, you know, it is a, it is a, a data-driven um, department now. Um, it, it's a finance department. It is an analytical department. It is a talent department. Um, it's a risk assessment department. And I love that HR is so dynamic because there's so many ways to um, really drive the success of an organization.
0: Yeah. Well, and I also, I love that your example is partnering, collaborating with a vendor. So, like, you didn't automatically say, well, here's, like, <laughs> how you have to clear the next week to go ahead and find these traits. You yeah. actually talked about how you can collaborate with these vendors. And, and I think that's something that... um I don't know, I guess I took for granted. I mean, I naturally figured that out. If I'm going to pay you tons of money, you're going to show up and and serve in that space that you're helping me with and be part of my team. And so you need to create those partnerships
1: with your vendors and, and do that. Yeah, I think it's one of the competencies of the future leader is how do you partner with outside experts? And how do you bring them in? How do you know when to bring them in? Why to bring them in? How to leverage them? Um, and, you know... Because again, you can't hire every expert in your organization anymore, no matter how big you are. And um, learning how to work with the appropriate vendors and get the most out of them is, is a skill set. And I think, you know, at some point will be a true competency.
0: Yeah. So my last question for you today, um, which if the students are still on, which they're supposed to be, will benefit from this. So they're... Their final project is to recommend a recruitment, not a recruitment, a retention strategy that's Mm -hmm. supposed to be sourced in modifying something in the current onboarding process, so from start to finish. Um, If you were going to provide three helpful hints of somewhere specific that they should go, so they're supposed to get tangible and small, so something, not these big, like, have a inclusive culture. No, something that you could actually do, like add to your to do list. So if you were gonna take, it could be three areas. It could be three very small things. But if you would, you know, they could be wish lists that you would want them to look into because you think these are areas that really need to be explored and, and shifted and changed. Um, it could be areas that you're curious about that they would conduct further research on and and find out. But if if you're gonna give them three kind of helpful hints to take their work further on their path of trying to figure out. What they should be proposing or thinking
1: about? Where would where would you take them? And so they're proposing. I just want to make sure I have it right, so I don't give you you know wrong stuff. Um, how to make the onboarding and retention more efficient? Is that correct? Yes.
0: Basically, okay. creating a retention strategy, retention.
1: but by morphing the recruitment onboarding process. Yes. Oh, awesome. So I, if I was going to do that project today, um, what I would do is I would divide it up into the the reasons why people work, and I would put something under each of those reasons and people work for financial, you know, paycheck. We gotta have those unless we're independently wealthy. Um, we we do it for growth. We do it for connection and greater purpose. And so I would take the reason why people work and I would find something to put under each of those um, so that you can create that package that speaks to um, today's employees.
0: Yeah, there you go. So she, you just have to pick one of those and give me, and then and then you're, you're done for the semester. You're That'd done. be awesome. A-plus to everyone. A-plus A plus to you for today, Jen. Great job. Great job. Um, so I don't see any more questions coming into the chat. Uh, do you have any final words before I kind of, well, I guess before you do closing remarks, I want to remind the live audience that if you haven't dropped your name and sitting in the chat and you want your sherm credits, make sure you do that so Steph can email you the activity code and certificate of completion. In addition to that, if you are listening to the replay and you don't have access to the chat because you're on the podcast app, um, you want to go ahead to the show notes and look at the link and you'll find all the details on how to earn your credits and get your certificate there. Um, but yeah, so other than that, uh, now I'm going to turn it over while, while we're waiting to see if anyone needs to drop their stuff in the chat. Jen, you have any final remarks that you want to say about today?
1: Oh, well, number one, thank you for having me. Um, You know, I always have such a great time with you and you inspire me every single day. So thank you for that, Sam. I do appreciate it. Um, I think uh, my final notes are, you know, don't look at yourself as an HR practitioner. Look at yourself as a talent strategist. And that's what we are as HR people. We are strategizing with the organization to deliver the business results through people just like the finance department has a strategy the marketing department has a strategy the um the supply chain group has a everyone has a strategy but hr people don't always stop and say wait a minute i'm supposed to have a strategy too and so keep your mindset set on i am in charge of the talent strategy to deliver the results. And if you approach HR functions with that mindset, you will connect with the executives in a way that you've never connected before. You will be invited to the table. You will be a trusted advisor and you will have incredible results.
0: Thank you, Jen. Great final words. And I highly encourage all of you to check out the show notes for more information on Jen, learn about 304 co- coaching. Also the OAD assessment. Did I say that right? Okay. OAD. One i going to make sure I had the letters in the right order there. Um yeah. And learn about that because that will all be in, in the show notes as well. I also was just notified that if you were on the app, you cannot see the chat box. So if that is the case, please email stuff directly and you can get your certificate So or respond to the email that you had today with all this show information. And as a reminder, if you're listening on the replay, make sure that you look on the show notes for more information on how to download your certificate and get your credits. So other than that, that's all for us today on this very special live episode. Thank you, Jen for being with me today Uh, thank you to all the students and everyone in our live audience for joining us for this live session and uh i will talk to you next week on the heart of it podcast have a great day